Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Thomas Goubeau. Thomas is the CEO of Q7. Q7 helps small to medium-sized businesses up to two and a half thousand people and as small as 50 to make soft HR hard. So what does that mean? Well, we're going to find out, but essentially it really means how do you create a common language so that HR can speak with precision and objectivity about the people within the organization in the same way that finance talks about EBITDA, profits, revenue, and so on. And Tomás is going to share his experience based on some personal scar tissue, which we always like. There's nothing like um, a humbling moment uh, for a good teacher. So we're going to go through that story and we're going to look at some blind spots. We're going to look at some frequently unasked questions. Why is it that we um, recruit in our own image very often? Why do we end up recruiting people who have the wrong set of competencies, despite the fact they may be very, very talented. What is it that we're doing to ask questions as managers um, through our own lens instead of seeing it through the lens of the job to be done? So we're going to explore all of these things because, as you'll have heard me bang on about many, many times, managers have two primary functions, hire the best people possible and then create the conditions for those people to thrive and do their best work every day. There is a third, which is protect them from acts of idiocy from above, especially from yourself. So without any further ado, Toma, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Would you mind giving the audience a couple of minutes on your history, please? Yeah, um, a father of four. I have a background in economics, and I started university in Belgium. Spent a few years in the UK and the US for British Telecom, which some of you might know, and then did an MBA, which basically pushed me into consulting. However, uh, 2011, my wife got into a bike accident. She spent a few days in, in coma where the doctor said, look, maybe you should uh, say goodbye, which uh, pushed me to ask the hard question, do I really want to be a slide monkey for life? Or do I really want to go into entrepreneurship? And so I started my entrepreneurship journey at that point. Did a startup from zero to 200 people, where we basically had a B2B SaaS software for the construction sector. And left that uh, two, a bit less than two years ago and joined a company called Q7 as a CEO. And there I've done some interesting things and uh, helping people make soft HR hard. So- Let's start with your epiphany. What was your best mistake that got you to where you are? Because clearly at the time, it didn't feel like a great one, but um, it got you. I'd say I'd have two. The first one was pushed onto me when I was in the hospital. And it was really the first one, which was, okay, do I really want to continue to make slides? I actually loved the intellectual challenge of being a consultant, working M&A deals and so on. But it didn't give me the satisfaction to deliver. The second, and there I changed, and actually this radical change was frightening, but I don't regret it at all. I think the second one is is related to how hard it is to scale a business if you don't put a structural HR framework in place. And the worst thing is I was a prospect of Q7. 
when I was a CEO of this company. <laughs> I didn't, and I literally did not understand what they were telling me. As a CEO, I mean, especially when you're, you grow, you have raised a bit of VC money, you look at HR as a pain, right? You focus on products, on sales, on closing deals, on meeting, uh, on, but, but you, and you outsource this to very competent people, but don't think strategically about, about HR. And that's the mistake I made. I realized that when, when I left the company, I totally forgot about the fact that I had been prospected by them. I left uh, my previous company and by, I don't know, destiny, s- synchronicity, I got in contact with uh, the founders. It's like, hey, can you help us with our go-to-market? And what you typically do when you have a go-to-market consulting gig, you call customers mm-hmm. and you ask them, okay, what's so unique to Q7? And it's not that one or two people said me that, but it's each and everyone had a form of, we finally have a common language in HR, similar to what we have in finance. In one way, shape or form, they said it with almost those language, this exact language. And I was like, okay, there's something here about the fact that they all say the same thing. And so that's where I, I started digging and I understood what it really meant. Okay. So you took on an external HR when you'd grown from zero to 20. What yeah. happened then? As I mentioned earlier, so when you, you're your own boss, right? When you're, and whether it's a, a scale-up or not, whether it's VC-backed or not, it doesn't really matter. We see it now over and over. You're up to 10, 15 people. As a founder, as a CEO, or as an executive, most of your time is spent building the business. You know everybody, everything is fine and so on. But then there's a point where you're 20, 25 people and you start to have HR issues and it's actually starting to consume more of your time. And what I did, what most people do is you hire somebody to take care of your payroll and you hire probably also somebody who can help you with recruiting, onboarding people. And the mistake we made, even though these people are very competent, is we outsource the whole of the strategic vision as well of HR. It is... Exactly. And and so that's a big mistake that I made that I see a lot of people make. And then they complain about, yeah, but we have many things and, and they don't, it doesn't work. I mean, I need to, to be involved in, in salary discussions, in performance, we miss our objectives, but, but, and, and we have a lot of tools, but actually what's happening behind it is like, they don't have the foundations right. And again, it's not to say that, that these HR people you're hiring are are not competent, quite the contrary. It's just, it's unfair to them to ask them to end it, do the implementation and also think about this HR strategy. It is the best analogy I can give is to say, okay, to an accountant, hey, now I want you to report to the board everything we're doing here. You would not, you would not do that. You would hire a CFO, even yeah. part-time fractional to help you translate what the accountant does into what the board is requiring. And that's a bit the mistake a lot of people make. Okay. So if we think about some definitions then, what, what are the key definitions? What's the key language that we need to share across the organization, especially within HR, but so that when we talk about it, everyone understands what it means? Because I think failure to have clarity on definition is creates ambiguity. And then that leads to politics, disagreement, mismatched expectation, and disaster. 
what my big epiphany moment when 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 coming into this is um if you look at how you recruit most managers ask the same questions to all candidates what are your strengths your weaknesses and they would have many iterations of that whether they recruit for a receptionist a developer a sales or a cfo when you look at setting objectives you do it the same way for everyone and actually that's one of the big mistakes you Think about your business or your company. Let's say you have 100 people, right? 70% of them in your business will be individual contributors. What I mean by that, people who are basically deliver support, sales, project managers, and so on. About 20% will be in manager managerial roles, and 10% will be your executive team. Now, the type of questions you need to ask is completely different during interviews to your individual contributors, managers, or executives, because you need to test different things. One of the best ways for me to explain this is, let's take an example of a project manager and a key account manager. The surface, those would be two very different roles. One is closing business, doing customer visits, doing demos, and so on, whereas the other one is trying to implement, coordinate a team to deliver a certain set of milestones. But if you start to dig, when you are talking to a key account manager, you give him a sales target. And then you expect him or her to define the activities he or she will do in order to meet that sales target at the end of the month or the quarter. With the project manager, it's the same thing. You say, hey, here's the milestone. Now go ahead and define what the, the task or activities you will do. So there's a number of things where if you start to compare a project manager and a key account manager, on what we call general skills or general expectations, the expectations are actually the same. And so this also means that you can ask the same interview questions to both. It will just give you a little bit of a different context, but you will be able to test what level of autonomy do they have today? And is it in line with what I'm expecting? What level of task are you doing? Is it in line with what I'm expecting? And so you can ask way more similar things than you expect. The way you manage someone is the same. It's the same thing. It's like, Okay, today you're coming a little bit too often to me for validation of your task. Let's work on your autonomy so that in six months' time, you're completely autonomous in everything you do. So these are the things when I realized that I realized that HR was not as a black box and it didn't need to be a gut feeling management. This is really interesting because in my model of the world, middle managers are under pressure from above, they're under pressure from below and from all sides. Their peers are scrutinizing them, their customers are scrutinizing them, their employees can sue them, they can get fired by their bosses. And they're in this really precarious position. And we then give them the least amount of training of any group within the organization, and we turn them into task monkeys. And the job of a manager is not to run meetings and run reports. And those are functions, but when they become the central thing, we end up overemphasizing data or we overemphasize production and we don't look at the other things, we miss out. With CROs, I use the iron triangle model with them. And you know, down one side, we have relationship, another side, we have strategy. And the other side, we have revenue. And you know where they focus their attention. It's on revenue. 
But what part pays the price? Well, generally, it's relationships. Why? Because we don't have time for that soft, fluffy stuff. So these problems are endemic. They're just packaged differently wherever you look. So I know there's a question in here somewhere. What can we do to help the middle management layer? And how can HR turn these soft skills into hard skills that give managers the resource they need in order to get the best out or create the conditions to allow their people to do their best work? One way to look at the answer, and we are often confronted with people like I was, CEOs, CFOs, CEOs, ROs, and so on, who who um, think about the top line most and the end result, right? The lagging measures. Yeah. I think one way we try to change their view on this is to say, okay, what's the purpose of your business? It's to be profitable, to grow, but I mean, it's basically to create value, right? Yeah. What is the biggest asset you have to do that? It's most people say, the people, it's actually not really the people, it's their competences, right? And most most importantly, their valuable competences. Now, the fact that you have the, the right competence in-house does not mean you will have the performance you require. There's a missing link. The missing link is engagement. Employee engagement with the right people, the right competence with employee engagement will get you the results you really look for. Now, there's many studies, and we can look it up. 70% of the engagement is done through the manager. So it's the manager who basically ensures that the employees engage. So the role of the manager is twofold. You mentioned it in another way in the beginning of the podcast, but it's to develop the competence of his team members and to engage them. Again, this has been studied plenty. What are the four things a manager needs to do? That's, it's four, not more. It's be clear about expectations. It's giving proper feedback, giving support, and recognition. A manager is basically paid to do those four things and those four things only. Expectations, proper feedback, the right support, and recognition. If a manager does, does those four things, then the employee will strive. Now, the issue we have as HR, the issue we have is that because we don't have our basics right, because we, have, we don't have this common language, when we talk about people, we talk with feelings. We talk with, okay, what do you think about Marcus? Well, I think, I feel, I believe. We don't have a common framework to talk about that. And so that's where you start to see discrepancies. Is that saying a CFO comes in and he redefines what AB does? I mean, you'd fire him next day, right? And that's where we see this, this kind of patchwork that exists. And so we see a number of companies who are really spiraling up, being able to do many MA deals, acquiring companies. The big thing is, and it's any framework you want, but have a strong HR framework in place that will help you and implement it across the company that help you to focus really on how can I grow my team members? How can I make sure they are engaged instead of having fluffy discussions about somebody coming into your office and saying, hey, I need, I've been here for three years. I need a pay raise. Otherwise, I leave. Oh, yeah, okay, I'll give it to you. The fact that you do this you create a huge amount of issues down the line. Because I can tell you, people know what others earn. And if there's one thing that demotivates people more than anything else, is unfairness on the, on the uh, whether it is salary, but other fairness as well. You need to treat people fairly and objectively. 
again, partly I think managers are in a really awkward position because they've got these metrics that are being drilled down through leadership and they're being reinforced through playbooks and through compensation and through promotion and through firings as part of the culture. And yet we're told that we're meant to be trying to drive shareholder value. But I think this misses the point entirely. Every business has a job to be done. Everyone in the business has their role is to execute their part in delivering that job to be done. And I think if we started designing roles from the job that they were intended to deliver and their part in contributing to the company's overall job, we would create more unity. The compensation, the metrics that we would create would align. But the problem is no one does that because typically the way we do job descriptions is we cut and paste from the job description of the person we just fired or who failed in the role. I mean, what the hell is going on? Yeah, so many things. Job descriptions are so I mean, done in so many ways wrong. Most For most, what I've seen is it's more of a to-do list. But in the world we're in today, things are changing so quickly. It doesn't work like that. You need to give the person a mission. What am I holding you accountable for? And I'm not going to give you a list of tasks to do. I'm going to give you what's the mission of this job. And a good way to think about that is to say, what would not happen if this job was not filled? If you answer this in five to seven sentences, then you have something that can stand time for a long time because the AI can come in. There can be new marketing tricks, whatever. The mission of their role will not change. And that is, I think, more important. You can hold people more accountable to the mission. And, and the best way to think about it is like, what would not happen if this job didn't exist? And it's an easy so, trick that, that... Again, when you're trying to work out what people really want, a very simple way is just ask them what they envy. Because more often than not, they don't know what they want, but they do know what they envy. So I love that question. So uh, give us a few more of those frequently unasked questions that management and leadership should be asking themselves. I don't think people realize often, and I'll, I'll share the link with you afterwards. There's been a study done in, in the U in, at MIT in the US of monkeys, where a scientist basically gives a stone in the cage of one monkey. When the monkey comes back, and gives it back. To one of the monkeys, the scientist gives a cucumber. To the other monkey, gives a grape. Yeah. And so you you see that, and I'll share the video afterwards so you can, you can share it with the audience, but it's amazing how the monkey who received the cucumbers reacts. After the second cucumber, he started to throw it away. After the third one, he gets completely bananas. The point of this is that Managers or C-levels need to understand that people prefer to dis to earn less, but know that their colleagues are earning the same. So to be very concrete, let's assume I have an employee who earns 90K a year, and one of his colleagues in that company earns 100K a year. This employee would leave this employer, go to another company, and only earn 80,000 euros, knowing that his colleagues also earn 80,000 euros. So they prefer to go work for less, knowing that everybody earns the same. 
that's a principle that we often forget and that hopefully will help some of some people in the audience understand that giving away an iPad or giving away some of these goodies to help hopefully solve a short-term issue is, is a big mistake because it causes down the line so many frictions that it is not weakening your whole HR infrastructure. Okay. So I think HR should be one of the mechanisms by which the board's vision is executed. And more often than not, there is division and ambiguity at the top. How can HR get the job done if the leadership team isn't clear about what they are all working towards and what can HR do to try and create unity? Let's start with the beginning. I think HR needs to understand it depends at what stage you are in your company, right? In let's say in zero to twenty people, it's about making sure um, you survive as a company and so on. But once you get a little bit later, as HR, you need to hold one of the execs accountable of clarifying the vision and the mission of the company, because you want your manager, as you mentioned earlier, you want your managers to be repeaters of the mission within the teams. You can't do it alone as a CEO or as a founder. You need your teams to to basically execute. That's why OKRs are so important in the companies because it's basically translation of your strategy into short-term objectives. So as a chart, define I would OKR for people who are not familiar with it. Okay, OKRs are objectives and key results that have been pioneered at Intel, but in the meantime, being used at Google, Dropbox, and many startups in in Silicon Valley, and that are there's many theories, but basically short-term three three months objectives that you rally the whole company around. And the idea is like the world changes at such a pace that every three months you do a reset. Okay, everything being equal, what do we need to achieve this quarter to meet our long-term objectives? But as HR, I would focus on making sure that you make your executive teams CROs. And you mentioned CROs, but I would really define CROs as being chief repeating officers okay so this is this is for me one of the big the big things is because once that is done then you can put an hr framework in place because then you have your top down communication that is clear and then you can start to involve managers and say okay what are you going to do to achieve our long long long-term vision what are you doing with your teams and that's as an hr you can you can oil the machine much better but without this guidance it's going to be very hard. Okay. So what data do we need to collect? Data, I think, force between, push your, your executive team to sit down once a quarter off-site, think about reiterating their vision and mission of the company. Plenty of exercises online. You don't need a lot. I mean, there's it's easy to facilitate. And define the three to five main objectives they want to achieve. Once you have that, Put it on A4 and distribute it within the teams. And then I would say, go individually toward all managers. Say, okay, what are you going to do as a team to help contribute to that and make it as public as possible? Right. So we're working backwards from the outcome. And then we're going down level by level to ensure that everybody is making their own contribution and 
everybody is participating so that they are taking ownership, which is the opposite of the command and control KPI-led management style that we're so used to. In order to be able to create that and facilitate that change, I'm guessing you come up against a certain amount of cultural pushback. Talk to me about how you manage that, because um, I don't imagine this is the, uh, the easiest transition, given that people fear uncertainty. So how do you package this in such a way that people see this as a certain way to improve and not create those downstream unintended problems that they are now creating for themselves that prevent them from achieving their goals? As you mentioned, it depends from a little bit from company to company, from industry to industry. But the top down in most companies is not working anymore, right? It's it's very much Taylorism from, I would say, a century ago, where you would focus on efficiency, getting more output out. But in today's setup or today's economy, where everything is moving so fast, you need to bring down the decision to as low as possible. You probably know Jeff Bezos, right, from, from Amazon. He had written in, I think, in 2005, one letters to his shareholders. There's two types of decisions, type one, type two decisions. The type one decisions is a kind of a one-way door. You pass through it, you can't come back. Think merger, think some of getting into some markets and so on. Those need to be done slowly and ref- and reflect on it as much as possible. But in a company, the vast, vast, vast majority of your decisions are type two decisions, meaning you can go through them and very quickly come back. Okay. But in order to go through them and come back, you need to have the context to make the decision to go through them and come back. So the context is where as low as possible in the organization, because that's in a certain market and, and that's where it goes. So I think to come back to how you change that, you need to make sure the management understands that and they buy into that vision that it's not up to them anymore to make all the decisions because it is actually physically not possible. They are hampering the company to grow. They're hampering the success of the company because they don't have the whole context. And thus, without the context, they will make the wrong decisions. Whereas if you give clear guidance about where we want to go, what are the objectives we want to achieve, and then manage by objectives, then if the objective is clear, coming back to my project manager and key account manager, the objective is clear. Okay, make all the small decisions. And if you make a mistake, it's fine. Come back and adjust, iterate, so that we achieve our objectives by the end of the quarter. So it does this need, of course, top-down approval but it does not need any more top-down decisions for everything. Sorry, who is going to be responsible for owning each of the three to five swim lanes? Because in my experience, what tends to happen is the most senior person instead of the most competent person tends to get that role. How do we prevent that from being the case? Hmm. So again, if you cascade if you cascade objectives down the line, right? Yeah. Ideally, the the, the, the company has three to five goals, which means there will be clear owners of those. And then within, let's say, you have a, a revenue objective by the end of the quarter. That's obviously going to be mostly on the, rev, on, on the revenue side of the organization. If you then go down, markets can take over some part of that revenue. 
you could also have new going into new markets can also be part of it. So it could cascade like, okay, what are we going to do as a team to help that upside down, up, yeah, upper objective? And breaking it down like that is more about building up the right rituals within the organization to get that done. And I think that is where HR can play a role. Coming back to your initial question, HR could facilitate not the content, right? HR is not competent or should not be expected to deliver on what are the key deliverables, the key ARR or targets. HR should facilitate the process to make sure that sales has given their objectives by that date, that the all hands is there where it's being communicated. And that's where they, they play a very important facilitating role, I think. So this then, I mean, you mentioned rituals. Let's talk about some of those. And I definitely want to come back to definitions as well, because that was the first question. And we, we, uh, I, I dragged you down uh, other blind alleys before I got the answer. Um, so let's talk about rituals first. What, what are the rituals that you believe that an organization must have in place? First is obviously you have the, the annual budget, right? Because especially when you've got bigger, if you don't have that, you don't have your ducks in line, then, then, then you have an issue. But then afterwards is building some rituals, like we mentioned about, okay, how are we going to break this down in a shorter three months quarter? Again, this is one of these rituals where when we, so I, I was lucky enough to, um, to do an equal to equal merger in which the CEO on the other side has been the CEO of a company that was Danish-based, but go from 30 people to, to 1,500 people in IPO. Post-merger, the next day, first thing he did was plan all the board meetings two weeks after the end of the quarter. Plan executive offsites two weeks before the end of the quarter. Plan monthly meetings, all hands. Plan, so he had an operating um, rhythm. It was, yeah, it was just, a re- and you knew 12 months ahead when it was. And I feel, and it's, 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 then it's just like, you know what's coming. There's no surprise. Everybody knows it's already in the agenda. I mean, literally every Monday we had all hands, team meetings. It was just there. The Monday was meeting day. So and there was a rhythm? It. Yes. A rhythm transparent objectives that the whole company knew about that we rehearsed every week, which are the OKRs or however you want to want to call it, basically our big operating goals that we, we were focusing on. And then the one-to-ones, because again, in the one-to-ones, that's where the manager plays an important role. How are you going to do, hold the employee accountable, but also help support, recognize the employee. One thing I recognized, so post-merger, were two CEOs with the experience he had. We he was he became the CEO and 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 rightly so. I took charge of the I became the CRO, so chief revenue officer. And one of the things we saw is the day we imposed all managers to do a one-to-one, even if they were bad at it, the fact that they had a weekly check-in with their team members increased predictability of revenue. When we then started to say, okay, here are the talking points you need to go through. It increased again. At some point, we did eight quarters in a row where we had 95% predictability of our revenue growth. And so these were just built up on, on rituals, on habits, with a common with an agenda that was there. And so the only way to get that is just building in routines. And routines that are scalable, whether you have 50 or 200 or 500 people. 
Well, again, you, know, you, you look at things like the military and supercarriers, the average age on a supercarrier is 19, and they run off checklists. They have exercise briefings. They have people uh, observing on exercise with uh, clipboards and stopwatches and all that stuff, and then they do a debrief. And you don't hide from your mistakes. And I think part of the problem here is that as we go into a tougher market, those people who are not equipped will are likely to revert back to what they learned first. They're going to become more and more brittle. And what I'm seeing is people becoming very rigid about rules, playbooks, policy, and so on. And that then doesn't really reflect what's happening on the ground. And this then creates all sorts of other problems, because as people tend to depend on the policies that haven't really been thought through, and they were designed for the old economy, they're no longer fit for purpose. And you start getting bad decision after bad decision. And um, one of my clients had done a study on company failure. And one of the biggest reasons was three bad decisions in a row from leadership. That's enough to put yep. the business in That's where the two things we discussed earlier come back. For me, it's what is the objective of this role, not a checklist of things to do. Right, because this gives better guidance on making decisions. This is what I'm expecting you as an, of you as an end result, who should guide your decisions, not the checklist of the ten things that were accurate two months ago, and then the type two and type one decisions. As please let these people people are smart. If you give them the context, if you help them to learn, it's where. The manager plays a role in, in providing the feedback, the support, recognition, and so on. But it's also where the, the top level plays a role in giving the right direction and being chief rep, repeating officers, repeating all the time the same things. So if I'm hearing you correctly, a good leader will have a cadence and a rhythm. So they will communicate on a regular basis in specific ways. Everyone understands what the purpose of that communication is and what their part to play is in executing what follows from that communication or from those interactions. They are tied to the job that they are meant to execute, which are tied in turn to the overall objectives of the swim lanes. And those swim lanes all unify to one key objective, which is the company's objective. But it's all built back from the job to be done. And then layer by layer, each layer is responsible for and accountable for not only co-developing what they are going to do, but for making sure that they execute on time. And every layer of leadership is responsible for ensuring that the conditions exist so their people arrive at the right point at the right time. Developing their, yeah, developing their skills and making sure they're engaged. And then in, in, in that, towards the vision. Yeah. So how can a solution like Q7 help the leadership and management understand precisely where the development areas are within the organization so that they can be precise instead of trying to use a broad brush uh, one-size-fits-all solution. So if you um, remember when we were when you were a kid or when, when I was a kid at least, and I see it again with my kids now, is one of the games we played was Guess Who? 
mm-hmm. right? In Guess Who, you have a, a card where you have uh, you ask questions like, okay, this is it a, a man or a woman? Uh, does it have like, glasses and so on and so on? And basically, five to seven questions, you are able to precisely pin down who the person is. Now, this is on physical attributes. Imagine a world where you can do that on an employee and build a very clear picture. The main question is, why would you do that? Because if I'm asking you, as I said earlier, what you think about Marcus, it's going to be feelings. It's going to be like, yeah, I think he, Marcus is good. But it's like asking, do you like blue? Okay, but what kind of blue? It's so vague. Is it dark blue? Is it high? So it's, it's not precise. So one of the things we do is on seven dimensions, we make clear definitions so that we can have a clear picture of who it is. The dimensions are, what do I expect from you in your job? What level of competence do you have? Meaning, are you still developing competence, developed competence, or developing others? What level of performance are you are? Uh, are you at below, in line, or above expectations? What potential do I see in you in the next 12 to 18 months? How aligned are you with your vision and values? What is the risk of attrition? So for you to leave. And then how long have you been in your position? So with these things, I'm able to describe a person similar to guess who in 60 seconds. And now I have a ground for personal development plans. I have a ground for succession planning discussion, salary increases. That is common because it is not up to the subjectivity of the manager. It's really about objectivizing and being able now to say, okay, hey guys, I have this person, this persona now, help me with this development plan. What should I do to develop this person's competences? And the managers are smart. They'll help each other. They'll figure out how it's been overly tested. The founder of Q7 has done this for 20 years at the university. His case at the university is the answer is always in the room. That's yeah. when the magic happens. Is when you put three, four managers together and they talk about their people instead of giving them generic trainings. Again, let's talk about training and development because one of the things that fascinates me is that managers spend so much of their time in low-value supervisory work and very little in coaching, developing, strategizing, interdepartmental collaboration, meeting customers, reflection, you know, all of this stuff. And I think one of the most important functions HR can have is to help managers to learn how to do their job and create the space for them to do that. What are your thoughts? I can't agree more. I think what HR has done very well over the past decades is create this cadence, right, where you have the annual reviews and so on. So the when feedback needs to be done is clear, when they need to do their jobs clear. They've also facilitated a lot of, let's say, training on how to give good feedback on um, how to do active listening and so on. The problem managers are struggling with are not those two. They're mostly struggling on, on what do I need to give feedback? And do I feel comfortable to do that? Because when I have identified the cause of somebody's challenges, then I can work on that. But sometimes managers feel very alone on this. I think helping, uh, helping managers in that, what is the real root cause of this? Is it an autonomy issue? Is it a um, type of behavior issue? That is where HR can definitely facilitate. How do you grow that? How do you set that up? It's it's a matter of 
yeah, building this common language. There's many frameworks. Bain, McKinsey, we discovered a couple of others got this right. As long as you share the same way of talking about your employees, that's where you get to a point. Right. So effectively, you're just confirming that ambiguity is the mother of all foobars. If there's ambiguity, it leads to mismatched expectations, confusion, people doing what they think is the right thing and then being punished for it. I don't know if you know, remember you, one of the, 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 the CRO of HubSpot, I don't know if you HubSpot is, is known in the audience, but he basically has an amazing analogy as a, as a sales leader. He, he uses the analogy with a golf teacher. He says, let's, let's, let's show two golf teachers. One says, okay, take a ball, hit it. And you hit two, three, four, five balls. And this golf teacher then says, okay, put your grip like this. And then put your, your shoulders like that. Put your feet like that. And now hit the ball. And the ball goes in all directions. That's the wrong way of doing, of, of, of helping your team. Imagine now a golf teacher who basically says, okay, hit a few balls. So same starting point. And now says, okay, just change your grip like this. And now hits 200 balls. Okay, now that you mastered this part. Okay, now change your shoulders like that. And now hit 200 balls. It's basically as a manager, it's like, okay, what is the one thing I want to focus on with my team member this month, this quarter, that will have the biggest impact in on his results, on his performance, on his competences? I think that's something that we usually forget. We try to or fix everything at once, which never works, or give something general general advice because we don't know what to focus on. Okay. So this then speaks to the need of leadership to be really clear. Um, how often do the best laid plans fall apart because of the simple fact of ambiguity at the CEO level? I think it's always the case, right? It's it's the direction you want. Um, I'm, I'm helping a couple of companies now, and we had this discussion with one of the companies. It's about 50 people. And yesterday he was explaining me the whole thing. It's like, okay, so you're clear about how you want to grow. You want to go in the Netherlands by going direct. You want to go into France and Germany by going indirect and then by acquisition in those countries. Yeah, but I'm not 100% sure, Like, which is fine. But state that is the plan for now as a strong hypothesis mm -hmm. and align everybody in that direction. Next quarter, in six months and 12 months, you can always change the plan based on new learnings. But what the company needs, what your employees needs, what, what, what everybody needs is for you to put a, a, a foot in the ground and say, this is where we go based on the, the, the information we have today. In six months, it's fine to say, guys, this was one of the underlying hypotheses. It didn't work out. So we changed that. Partnerships don't work. So we do need to go directly in France and in Germany, for example. It's the job of the leadership team. To do that, to clarify where we want to go, it's not their job to be 100% right, but at least they should be sometimes right. But it's their job to clarify the direction so that the rest can cascade into the same direction. Too yeah. many there, companies. There's the hill, go conquer it, work out how. Yes. Right. Work out how, again, is, is, is type two decisions. Well, again, this speaks to the culture 
and the uh, nature of the leadership, because leadership that doesn't trust its people isn't going to make themselves that vulnerable and won't have the courage to encourage honest feedback and uh, constructive conflict. Net result of which is that you end up with all of this stuff being stifled and resentment and turnover and whatever. So how do we get the conditions? What do we have to do as the leader to unify people in order to ensure that they give up their empires and their fiefdom and they fixate on the company job? Yeah. Um, I don't know if you heard of Patrick Nurcini. Yeah. Um, five, dis- yeah. five dysfunctions of a team. I think that's for me one of the biggest that's a starting point. If the management team doesn't operate as one team, it's never going to work. So in here, I would say trust. You mentioned trust, right? Trust is the first point. It's in, I don't know if you say it in English as well, but in, in French and Dutch, you say a fish always start to stink at the head. Yeah. And so if the management team doesn't trust each other, doesn't go in in healthy conflicts in order to get the commitments and the accountability, then the underlying teams will not do it either. So it all starts with this management team that needs to have a trusted relationship where they are vulnerable against each other, where they are okay to say, we made a mistake, we thought this, but now it's going to that. And then this will triple down into the organization. It's not the opposite. So if you say, okay, why? If you have managers who don't trust their teams, maybe that's the issue, right? It's 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 their job as executives to build this environment where this can happen. If they're not doing their job, yeah, I think they're they're on the line. Okay, so the need for clarity at the top a cascade of ownership and responsibility in order to develop the plan and create the swim lanes so that everyone is clear about what their part is in executing the job to be done. Everyone is unified around a common purpose and there is clarity in terms of the communication. There is a a regular cadence of contact. Uh, There is an operating rhythm So everybody knows what the weekly check-in is, what the monthly, the quarterly touches are, uh, what the different types of communication are, what they're meant to do as a result of that, so that there's a mechanism where the leadership can see what's going on and anyone in the organization can, at the flick of a switch, see how much progress they are making and what contribution they are making to the overall outcome. Is that it? Yep. Okay, so when we have that, what is good about it? No, it sounds like a daft question, but well, then you go you go into this kind of spiral of yeah, positive spiral. I mean, it's kind of then it's building up, and you can be bigger. In fact, you can start to see this momentum. It's hard to build. I mean, it's like many of these things. You don't do this from from one day to another. It's a journey over four, five, six quarters before you really get there. But if you push through, if you then things start to really go into a direction where you are a company who can grow faster, be more creative, adapt to the market changes, enter some of the markets that you wanted to enter, compared to being internally focused in fixing all your issues, 
here you can start to be focused more on the outside because you know everybody's going into the same direction. You're not course correction correcting always inside. You're going outside and you trust that the teams will adjust to market conditions, market changes, product changes, because they're empowered to do that because everybody's clear of where we go. So it's a positive, yeah, it's a positive spiral we're going to. Okay. So when we're talking about our people, what are the factors when we're designing a job? What are the factors that we need to build in? And what are the common definitions that we need to have? So if you look at a role description, one is this mission. What do I expect from you? The second one for me is these generic general expectations we talked about. What level of autonomy am I expecting you at? And so there's 11 of those. One that we often forget is, okay, you're onboarding somebody in a new job. What do we expect from this person in the first three months? Being crystal clear on that at the moment when, when somebody starts is also setting expectations right from the get-go. Then I think from one that, that we see works really well is what does exceptional results mean? So it's not just the KPIs we're going to measure you. It's like, what does exceptional mean in our business, right? It's 20% above sales target. That is exceptional. It's not sales or revenue of 500. No, no, no. Exceptional for us is 20% above, 100% above. I don't care. But what does exceptional mean in our organization? Because then you know what, again, you're clear about where you put the lat, other more generic budgets and things like that. But, but I would say if, if you cover those three, four things, you really cover, you bring this peace and clarity and you, you can see that all the building blocks are going again in the same direction. Okay. So if we think about the language of HR, where does yeah. ambiguity set in because of a failure of common definition? Okay, let's step back. And there's three things that we need to have a common language on. The first one is making sure we define the right roles with the right objectives, which is basically your job description we just talked about. The second is making sure you have the right people in the right role. That's true, kind of a, a building a clear persona like the guess who we discussed. And then making sure you pay people the right compensation for the right contribution. It seems technical, but actually it, it is pretty easy once you have the playbook. When big companies do it all the time. What they lack is then afterwards the engagement, but that's, another, that's a whole other thing. But putting these basics, uh, do you know the Maslow pyramid, right? Yep. Where you have some of the, everybody's talking about being a leader, being, that's actually the last two steps in this pyramid. The whole basic foundations is making sure you're clear about the job, making sure you're clear about making the right person in the right role and paying according to what they contribute. That's the basics. Then we can start to elevate leaders. We can start to make them more better servant leaders. But how do you want to give the keys to a manager that has no impact on the salaries if people are underpaid or if you're starting to get discrepancies in, in your in your Paying things. So we need to help our managers to do that by getting these, these things in place. And as I said, it's not that complicated. We have companies of 12 people who do it in, in, in 90 days, but we have 
post-merger companies of 2,700 people who do it also in 90 days. Because once you have this common language, it's like any CFO, most CFOs come into a company for the first time in, I would say, 90 to 120 days, they get everything back on track. Why? Because they have the GAP or the EFRS, they have the pound or the euro, they have the e-bound, they have a number of things they're not put in question. Whereas if you look at HR, we reinvent the wheel all the time. You solve from problem to problem and you create a lot of inconsistencies. Is there a problem with the language of human resources, the term itself, because it dehumanizes? It, I mean, it, it used to be personnel. One of my favorite comedians is George Carlin. And I remember seeing a, a sketch that he did or a set that he did where he was complaining about the dumbing down and the sanitization of language. You know, in First World War, it used to be shell shock. Then it became battle fatigue. Then it became PTSD. And you see this with politics. You know, politicians who don't want to be cornered use language that diminishes or use language that generalizes or avoids and we see this a lot. HR, human resources. Do we need to have a rethink of that? Fair point. What we start to see a lot is people experience as PX, as a, an evolution, if you want, because that's what is becoming. So it's, it's how people experience the you as a company. And now that's, and, and the reason why this is, is, is important is Let's not forget a little bit the context we're entering. We're entering a context where a lot of baby boomers are going to retire soon. Yeah. Right? We're entering, we're in the first time in, in centuries, you have five different generations on the work floor. Going from the baby boomers who had no problem having top-down instructions to the new generations who have been raised with a, a phone or a smartphone in their hands. and so. The challenge for managers is how do I cope with all of this? And what we know, we discussed about it, is like the top-down approach is not working anymore. So the experience managers have needs to go from an ecosystem, right, where I'm the boss and I tell you, to an ecosystem where managers become more of a servant manager, helping out their team members to succeed because the more their team members succeed, the, better, the more they succeed as well. So the people, yeah. people experience is, is, I think, a nice way to rethink HR. Now, you can't do people experience without having these foundations. How do you work on that without making sure that it is clear what I'm talking about? So in terms of big, hairy-ass goals and the strategy, the swim lanes, Maybe one that people should be considering as you're going into this really tough economy, there's this generational handover. Who knows, World War III may be around the corner. We're seeing massive political and social upheaval the next couple of years through the election period in the UK and the US is going to be full of tumult. We need to be ready to adapt. And our people, their brains are awash with cortisol, adrenaline, their bright bits are being switched off. They need these processes. They need these systems to give them certainty so they can think straight. They don't need more complexity, more chaos. So 
as a final, as a parting word, then, what advice would you give your younger self as you look back, knowing what you know now, uh, knowing he would have probably have ignored the advice? I like the good enough revolution, meaning that in HR, do simple things that are good enough to get the job done. So the 80-20, but focusing more on the 20 than the 80, it is not that complicated. But if you invest in some of the basics, you'll get a lot done in HR. And the problem is today we over-engineer HR way too much with way too complicated forms because we want to have so much information. What we really want is that the manager and the employee have a meaningful and actionable conversation about how to develop the skills of the employee and how to engage, uh, make sure that this person is engaged in the company. That's it. All the rest of these complex HRIS tools, all these complex things, is, it's not important. Make sure they are paid on time and that when they, that managers have a regular conversation and for the rest, support them. And as a CEO, I would say, do your job as an executive by bringing clarity to where you want to go and put, even if you have uncertainty and you will have, right? You don't, you, there's no crystal ball. Put a direction and make it clear that you don't know what you don't know, but based on what you know, this is where you want to go and you want the company to go. And this is how you want to go and get there. Excellent. Tom, we've come to time. How can people get hold of you? Through LinkedIn is a, always a good way to uh, to get in touch otherwise you can reach me on my uh, email but i can drop that i don't know if uh, if that's the no, easiest way give us your email now thomas.gubo g-o-u-b-a-u at q7leader.com excellent thomas gubo thank you thank you very much so this is marcus kauke signing off once again from the inquisitor podcast if you found this useful then please like comment share subscribe and share it with someone who would benefit and if you are struggling because all of your training that you've had over the last few years, and it used to work, isn't working anymore, and your sales are maybe a little bit flat, uh, your pipeline's not certain, you're losing customers, or you're not sure about the future, then give me a call. There's, I'll give you 15 minutes, no pressure. I'll even assess you for free. And at the end of that, you'll have a clear understanding of what you can do in order to improve your performance in the next seven days. So why not just drop me a line? In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.